Welcome to the PCTR Podcast. I'm Robbie Itterberg, Senior Pastor. I want to thank you for listening today. We hope that you hear from God and that this podcast encourages you in your faith journey. You can connect with us on social at facebook.com slash PCTRNJ or our Instagram handle, PCTRNJ. Or you can find more information or resources at PCTR.org. Have a great day. Peace. Moving into the message this morning, I'm wondering, have you ever felt helpless? It was a time when I was in college and I lost my car keys. And it wasn't really that big a deal. I parked on the street outside the house we lived in and it was right across from campus so I could walk to my classes. It wasn't that big a deal until I saw the signs posted along the street one day that said street cleaning and gave the upcoming date and time. And indicated if you don't move your vehicle, it will be moved for you. So, of course, I started to frantically look for my keys for those following days, and though I tried and I tried and I tried, I couldn't find them. And so the day came for the street cleaning, and I was waiting, and I saw when the tow truck drove up, and so I went out, and I met the tow truck operator, and I made my case, telling him all that had happened, and my diligence in looking for my keys, and I understood I needed to move my car, and that tow truck operator did not care at all. (laughs) He proceeded to put the chains around my wheels and haul my car away, and all I could do was stand there helplessly watching it go. Well, what do you do when you are helpless? What do you do when you can't affect the situation in your life or in someone else's life? That's what we're going to talk about this morning in the next message in our sermon series called Go and Serve Together. This series, if you've been with us, comes really out of John 20, verse 21, and you might have it memorized at this point. This is where Jesus has his disciples together, and he tells them, as the Father has sent me, so also I am sending you. The Father sent the Son, Jesus the Christ, to bring salvation and to seek and to save the lost. He was going to work restoration of all things. And Jesus sent us, his church, to continue that work, to seek the lost, to proclaim that message and hope of salvation through Jesus Christ, and to seek to bring all of life into alignment with God's intended purposes in his kingdom. And yet the reality that we realize, that though we have been sent, the further we go, the more places we go, we'll find ourselves facing more and more situations that feel impossible, where we feel overwhelmed, helpless, and inadequate. So what do we do when we feel helpless? We're going to jump into that this morning through Luke chapter 18. If you'd like, you can follow along on the screens, but let's listen for God's word speaking to us this morning. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. 
And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let's pray as we move into this together. Heavenly Father, may you add your blessing to the reading, proclaiming, and hearing of your word. Let anything that is not of you just fall away, be forgotten, so that all that remains is your word for us, shaping us deeply from the inside out. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Jesus told a lot of parables. That's what this is. They're short stories that are intended to help make a point, particularly a spiritual reality. And so in this story, Luke tells us, Jesus uses this relatable story to encourage the people, us, to always keep on praying and to not give up. And I would add to that, particularly when we're helpless. See, this woman in the story has a problem. She's the victim of something. We don't exactly know what. And so she goes to the judge to plead for justice. Now, Jesus' hearers of this story would have recognized that this woman has a lot of problems. Not only has she been the victim of some sort of injustice, she's also a woman. Now, I'm not commenting this. This was in Jesus' day. They would have recognized that she's advocating for herself in court. Well, the problem is a woman's testimony in that day was considered unreliable and questionable. And so here she is going to court without a man to go with her. So she, in other words, has really no voice and yet is trying to advocate for herself before this judge. She is truly helpless in so many ways. But she also knows she has no other recourse. She has to go to this judge because the judge is the only one with the authority and the ability to do anything about her situation. And so Jesus gives us this simple story to understand, primarily to tell us, keep praying. Don't give up. Keep pleading with God because God is the only one with the authority and the ability to change the situation. As we think about this, this is particularly true in those situations in our own lives that just feel too big for us, that are really out of our control. It's also true when we think about going and serving, where we go out into the world and we face circumstances that we don't know how to fix. We can't find a solution. We're trying, using our best creativity, using the resources available to us, and we can't seem to come to get a solution. We're stuck. Other people are trapped. Now, in those situations, God is the only one with the ability and the authority to change anything. I mean, it's, we can do some things, right? We're not without agency. But even if we're able to alleviate some of the suffering, even if we're able to change some of the circumstance, What we know deeply is that God is the only one that can change hearts. God is the only one that can really bring about a deep healing. 
Sometimes we go and we find ourselves or we find others in circumstances and situations of our own making. The result of our sinfulness. The result of our bad choices. The result of us continuing in patterns of thought and behavior that are destructive and only God can change hearts in those situations. Or we find when we go out that some are victims of other people's choices and behaviors, and we know that now they may be filled with anger or bitterness or hopelessness or apathy or whatever it is, and only God can heal those hearts. We may want to, and I may want to, but I can't heal you. You can't heal the person next to you. You can't change the person next to you. And you know, some of you married folks know this because you've been trying for a long time, and it's not working, is it? We know we can't change and heal people. Man, it doesn't stop us from trying, does it? (laughs) We go and we serve, but when we go and serve, we have this propensity to trust in ourselves, in our ability to accurately assess a problem or a situation, to our ability to come up with solutions, to fix it, our ability to intervene, to help, and Inevitably, those solutions are things that we're able to accomplish, aren't they? The reality is that as we go and serve, and we recognize that going and serving is more than just an eight-week project, but it's a way of life, a part of the mission that Jesus gave us when he sent us out, what we'll find as we go, the more we go, the more often we go, the more places we go, we'll find there are more problems that are way too big for us to solve. Matter of fact, this is part of why some of us don't go and serve in the first place. Because we know this. <laughs> we know that when we start going and we get involved in other people's lives, it's messy. Right? People are messy. People are broken. Sin is messy and seems to be everywhere. There's things that are unsafe and unstable. It's complicated. And so we just kind of want to turn our heads the other way and not engage because we can't solve the problem. Sometimes when we go, we come face to face with realities that we're actually part of the problem. That we might benefit from a system that has some winners and some losers. And that doesn't make us feel very comfortable either. And so we find ourselves often feeling like, I can't do anything about this. Now, I'll acknowledge that at those moments, we are often, we start thinking about prayer. (laughs) And sometimes we turn to prayer in those moments with a passion and a hope and and an eagerness. Other times we turn to prayer almost as like a consolation prize. Like as with this, I I can't really do anything about this situation, so I guess I'll just pray. You know, oh yeah, I can't really help you. I'll I'll pray for you, maybe. We say that a lot. And so we say this and we we treat prayer as if, hey, I can't do anything to help you, so I'll pray, as if prayer isn't helpful. We treat prayer maybe more like the last resort. But what if prayer isn't supposed to be the last resort? What if it's supposed to be the first response when we see and encounter brokenness in the world? What if prayer is the first thing that we do before we even start to try to solve a problem? 
But see, part of, but our problem, part of this problem is that we're driven to prayer by our helplessness, but as we go and serve, we trust in our ability rather than our helplessness. There's a, an old, a classic book by a man named Halsby, and I've picked it up a lot of times, and I have rarely gotten past the first chapter. Because he's inviting us into this profound experience of prayer, and yet in the very beginning, at the very foundation of it all, he says, helplessness is the beginning of prayer. In other words, we can't really pray until we acknowledge, till we embrace the reality of our helplessness to fix things. Well, I don't really like helplessness. Most of us don't. It's a very vulnerable, it's a scary posture to truly feel helpless, but only in that vulnerable place will we stop trying to solve the problems on our own and like the helpless woman in the parable, plead with the one who has the authority and the ability to actually work a deep and lasting solution. And so, we pray. We pray for those that we will go and serve not as some sort of consolation prize, not as, well, because we can't really do anything else, but because we are turning to the God of the universe who is actually able to do something greater than we could possibly do, and he's also the one who wants to. (laughs) That God actually wants to bring healing and restoration. That's what his mission is about. That's what he's doing in the world. And so we're praying to him, pleading with him, asking him in prayer to do what he already is inclined to do. So why don't we just talk to him about it? But as we do, as we pray, I think we face the same challenges or similar challenges that the woman in the story faces. Or she pleads her case before this judge, and over and over and over he turns her away. He turns her away. Nothing changes. Change doesn't come quickly. It doesn't come easily. Now, as an aside to the story, I just want to address a point. I think often when we hear the stories that Jesus tells, we want to draw a straight line from every little detail and character from his story to real life. And so you might be thinking because of that, you might be asking, well, wait a second. You know, this, this is a story about prayer, and this woman is pleading with this judge, and in the prayer, we're pleading with God, and so, but this judge is unjust, so does that mean God is unjust? Does that mean that, that God doesn't want to hear our prayers, doesn't want to respond, doesn't want to intervene in the world unless we're just obnoxious? No, this parable isn't trying to teach us about the character of God. It's not teaching us about life in the kingdom of God. Right? Many of Jesus' parables begin saying the kingdom of God is like, and so you can kind of take that whole picture as this is describing what life in God's kingdom is. This parable is specific, very clear. It's teaching us to pray, keep asking, and to not give up. And so this story is not about the character and the nature of God. It's about the character of the woman and nature of prayer. And so this story is inviting us to persist in prayer, to keep on asking, even when it doesn't come quickly. And as I was thinking about this, I found it interesting that somewhere along the line, we stop doing that. And we have to be told to keep asking. 
I was thinking about Everett, who is almost four. You know, he's our youngest. And Everett has no problem persisting in asking. <laughs> right? He'll just throw it right out there to his parents. Pretzels, 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 pretzels. How do you ask? Please? Pretzels, 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 right? Until he wears us down to nothing and we give him the whole bag. Help yourself. Just take it. Go. Right? But somewhere along the line, we stop doing that. Now, there are good reasons for that, right? Like that is obnoxious and not socially okay and can be very self-centered. And I, I get all those things. But, but Jesus's point here is asking us in prayer to continue as the children of the heavenly father to keep asking our good father. Keep asking, keep asking, keep asking. And, and was it Everett's plea that changed his situation? Was it because he asked over and over and over that he got the pretzels? No. Right? He could plead all he wants, and he can ask, and he can ask, and he can ask, and he can keep saying pretzels, but that's not going to bring the pretzels down from the shelf, is it? He was still dependent upon mom and, or dad to actually get the pretzels off the shelf and give them to him. In the same way, prayer is not what changes our situations. God is the one who changes our situations, which is freeing because that means you don't have to come with the most beautiful, flowery, magical prayers. You don't have to come and, and as if it's some magical spell that if you pray in the right way, then you'll get what it is you're looking for. No, you can come in all of your rawness, in all of your helplessness, and simply, as Jesus says, just say it. Don't, don't have flowery words. Let your words be few. Tell your father. He already knows what you need. Keep it short. Keep it sweet. But continue. Keep asking your father because he wants to respond to his children when they come to him. And that's what Jesus said in the parable. He's saying, man, if this unjust judge will finally respond and give justice, how much more is your father who is truly just Will he not bring justice when his children cry out for it, when they persist in it? He will give it, and he will give it quickly in his time. And so prayer is not some consolation prize. Prayer is service itself. It's an act of service on behalf of others to come and cry out before God on behalf of other people. David Wells is a, a theology professor, and at one point he he talks about the nature of petitionary prayer, the kinds of prayers where you're asking God and requesting things from God. And he says this, he says, the nature of petitionary prayer is in essence rebellion. Rebellion against the world in its fallenness. The absolute and undying refusal to accept as normal what is pervasively abnormal. What he's saying is that the nature and character of the prayers we bring, the requests we bring before God is rebellion against the status quo because the status quo for so many in the world is not making it and is not life as God intends it to be. Because the status quo is loneliness and isolation and people dying in corners of society without people around them to love them. The status quo is depression and anxiety and despair. The status quo is homelessness 
insecurity and each one looking out for their own interest and not for others. The status quo is hunger. The status quo is estrangement and broken marriages and broken relationships. The status quo is division and conflict and war and abuse. The status quo is people using other people. The status quo is busy and overwhelmed and overburdened. This is the status quo of the world. And to pray is to reject as normal the status quo. To pray is to approach and plead with God to agree with him that this isn't how things are supposed to be. And so we rebel against the status quo and plead with him to bring all of life into alignment with his kingdom and his values. But why do we accept the status quo? Because when we stop asking, when we don't persist in prayer, we're really just accepting things as they are. I guess it's not really going to change, so I'm just not going to really ask. Why don't we persist in prayer? I, there's lots of reasons for it. I mean, there's just plain old distraction, which is around all of us and just the busyness of our lives. I know for some, don't really feel worthy to even have our prayers heard by God, and so why bring them in the first place? And others, we want an instant fix or at least a reasonably quick fix, God, so when it doesn't come, we just kind of give up. And we, but at the heart of all of it, maybe it's just our doubts in our humanity. Our doubts that God can or that God will respond to our prayers. I'll just acknowledge, when I do not persist in prayer, in those moments, at those times, it shows that the reality is I don't really trust the character, the promises, and the timing of God. And I don't really trust Him. I don't trust that He is really for us, that He really wants things to be different. And Jesus' question at the end of the parable hits me between the eyes. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Or will he find me accepting the status quo? Hoping, but maybe not really believing that it will be different. Certainly not believing enough to pray because faith will persist in prayer. Continue to continue to plead with God who has the ability and the authority to change the situation. So what are we supposed to do? Because we all wrestle with those doubts. Where does it leave us? We're we supposed to just trust harder, just like muster up some bigger faith somewhere down in, from deep inside of us or... Maybe many of us, you just kind of look at your lack of faith and you just kind of beat yourself up and say, oh man, there I go again, just such weak faith. And maybe we feel like if we beat ourselves up enough, then somehow we'll like, God will have pity on us and we'll have some more faith next time. Maybe we'll come up with some better words. I don't know about you, but I can't just make myself trust more. If you think about relationships in your life, can you make yourself trust another person more? You can make yourself act like you trust them more. You can choose to do things that would demonstrate trust, but does, does it change whether or not you actually trust them? I'm not sure it really does. Because trust has to be built. It has to be earned. 
I think God is inviting us to trust Him more fully, more deeply, so that we will persist in prayer to trust our Heavenly Father like Everett trusts his earthly father. And God is trustworthy. God loves us. And God can do more than we can even imagine. This is what Isaiah 53 is really demonstrating for us. That first reading we had this morning, this prophetic description of what was going to happen when the Messiah would come, when Jesus the Christ would come, that God would send his own son. And he would be oppressed and he would be afflicted, that he would take our pain and our failure and our brokenness and our sin. He would take our judgment. He would be crushed and crucified on a cross as a sin offering so that we could live. He would die. That's how much God loves you and how much he loves the world. If he loves you that much, can we not trust him? Isaiah 53 also tells us that no matter how bad things are, no matter how bad they get, God can work a miracle. It tells us that, that the Messiah would suffer and that he would die as we know Jesus did, but in that moment of the greatest suffering and the greatest injustice, when Jesus' life was given up, the prophet tells us he will see the light of life. <laughs> Resurrection. Right there, prophesied in the Old Testament hundreds of years before it happened, resurrection. And what it means for us is that out of the worst possible suffering, failure, and injustice, the moment where we are likely to question God the most, to doubt Him, how can you let such terrible things happen? That's the moment where God worked the most beautiful, the most profound, the most surprising, the most miraculous thing ever. Resurrection. And if we're, we are invited to persist in prayer because there is no darkness, there is no trial, there is no suffering, there is no pain from which he cannot bring a resurrection miracle. God is trustworthy because he loves us. Trustworthy because he can do more than we could possibly even imagine. He has the authority and the ability to bring the restoration that we long for. You may know the, the story of William Wilberforce, but if not, he was born in 1759 to a wealthy English family. After studying at Cambridge, he went on to become part of the parliament and didn't really do much in his first years until in 1785, Wilberforce had a profound conver conversion experience where the reality of what God had done for him in Jesus Christ became so real and it changed the entire trajectory for him. And so he tried to figure out, he was longing, now how do I live out this new life of faith? And so he consulted with a man named John Newton. You may know that name because he's the author of the hymn Amazing Grace. Newton became a spiritual advisor to him and counseled him to walk with the Lord, but that he had gifts and a calling that could be played out in social reform and in public service. And so he did, and in 1789, Wilberforce argued passionately before the House of Commons that slavery was a matter of great injustice and contrary to the principles of human dignity. At that time, there were 35 to 50,000 African slaves being transported across the Atlantic every year. And though he had some sympathy in the house, the opposition was fierce, and his bill that he proposed was defeated, 163 votes to 88. But Wilberforce would persist. 
He'd try again the next year, and he was defeated once again, and he would persist. He would often present as many as 12 resolutions a year against the slave trade. 1791, 1792, 1793, 1797, 1798, 1804, 1805. He continued to persist against all of the forces against him until in 1807, after 18 years, the Slave Trade Act was passed. Now, this bill made it illegal to trade slaves, but it did not free those who were already slaves across the British Empire. There was more work to do. Wilberforce persisted year after year after year. 18 years later, in 1825, his health had deteriorated so much that he had to withdraw from formal office, and yet he continued to advocate for the freedom of these slaves until finally, in 1833, the, the uh, slavery ab abolition bill was passed, freeing all the slaves in the British Empire three days before Wilberforce's death. That's what perseverance looks like. That's what rejection of the status quo looks like. Refusing to accept that which went against God's intent, his just intent for humanity. But what drove his perseverance? It was prayer. Wilberforce said this, of all things, guard against, ne guard against neglecting God in the secret place of prayer. It was in the secret place of prayer. Persisting, continuing to ask that God would change hearts and change minds, that God would break down unjust systems and structures, that God would work in him and work through him, that there could finally be freedom for slaves. See, Wilberforce knew that there was nothing that he was going to be able to do apart from a movement of the God of the universe. There was nothing in his helplessness or the helplessness of these slaves that could happen unless God would act. And so he persisted and pushed forward in, all of, in prayer and in all of the strength that God would give him. Whether you're a part of a go-and-serve group, whether you can actually physically go anywhere, you are able to serve because you are able to pray. You are able to stand against the status quo and plead with God that he would bring healing and redemption and justice and restoration. Prayer is not a second prize or a last resort. It is our first line of response because we plead with the God who is able and a God who is for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you invite us to pray. We thank you so much that as we approach you, you welcome us, that you love us, that you are trustworthy, that we can see it when we look at the cross, we can see it as we come to the communion table. Thank you that you give us this profound gift of access to you, that we can come, because the world is broken. It is not as it is supposed to be. It is not as you intended. And so, Lord, we plead with you to bring healing, to bring justice, to bring restoration to all that sin has broken within us individually, within this part of your church, throughout your church, and across your creation. May your justice prevail. 
we have a hope that this can happen not because of ourselves, but because of what you've done through Jesus Christ, our Lord. In his name we pray, amen.